you have a Bible with you this morning, would you go to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 16. I don't get to say that too many more times. It's really sad. It's like saying goodbye to a friend, right? Um, if you're new to New Hope, we've been in the book of Romans for three years, and um, 16 is the last chapter. And so uh, two more weeks after this week, two more weeks, and we'll be done with the book of Romans. And that brings a little tear to my eye. Um, before uh, we, we jump into that, if, while you're turning there, I want to pull your attention to a couple things. One is I, w- I want to celebrate with you something that you did recently in the, probably the last five or six weeks, I think, uh, Katie Harding came to the church and to the staff and said, I have an idea about a way that we could serve the Lansing area, especially foster children. And I want to put an image on the screen for you of some um, backpacks that you stuffed. And those particular backpacks are things that were prepared for children who are in the foster care program here in the metro area. So here's the deal. Uh, Katie essentially had this idea that if we put in those backpacks underwear and toothbrushes and toothpaste and stuffed animals and toys and all kinds of things that a child might need when they're in foster care, that that might have a special place in lifting their spirits. I don't know what you know about foster care and children that go into that. My family's had involvement in that. And uh, Katie and Scott, her husband, had a child in foster care that they recently adopted. And so our family and Katie's and Scott's family certainly know, and I'm sure some of you do, what it's like for a child going through that. It's a very traumatic experience to be taken from what you know and to be placed into a stranger's home. And many times, without many personal possessions... So you, as a church family, collected 65 of these backpacks, and that's just tremendous, church. I really applaud what you've done. That's fantastic. And you're going to see how that relates to what we're going to talk about in just a few minutes in the book of Romans. So here's the thing. Katie said that when she took those backpacks, she had to make some trips over to Bethany Christian Services and drop them off because these are pretty big units. They took up a lot of space in her car. So she keeps bringing them in the door and dropping them off. And the staff at Bethany Christian Services, their eyes are bugging out of their head like, oh, what are we going to do with all these things now? But they're putting them to use already and giving them out to children. So for kids that you will never meet, Underprivileged children going through really difficult circumstances, you've had an impact in their life. So pat yourself on the back on that one, okay? So here is the other second thing I wanted to pull your attention to is this little insert in your bulletin. If you didn't pull it out already, please do that. It's a financial report on where we're at on the building fund. And just look inside there, you'll see a slip of paper. It looks just like this. Maybe you were watching some of the graphics on the screen earlier. But I want to show you the amazing thing that has happened here at the church. If you look all the way down in the bottom corner, you see on the right-hand side, it says um, cash remaining to go, $644,000. That means in $644,000, that church will be completely paid for cash completely paid for debt-free. That's an amazing thought, right, church? So let me put the mathematics together for you on this. Three years ago, when we presented the idea of what we were going to do to the church family, there was a 100% response from all three services, everybody that attends here, saying, let's go, let's do this. So we found that piece of land, and it's 14 acres, and that was almost a million dollars, $976,000. That land was purchased with cash. And then we came back and said, okay, here's the building we're going to build. And all total, we told you about a month ago, it looks like everything coming in is about $6.5 million. So put together those numbers, and you're at a $7.5 million project, 
and there's only $644,000 left to go. God has really worked through you, would you say? That's an amazing, amazing story to tell. So that tool, if you're new to New Hope, we're building a building over on Saginaw Highway. And it, uh, by the way, side note, it uh, looks like our very first services will be August 11th, okay? Write that down in your calendar, and then you can call me on it if it doesn't happen. <laughs> I told you last week that it looked like the chairs had been back-ordered, and they have indeed been, and so for the auditorium. So August 11th is the date we've set. But that means when we move into that facility... Whether God chooses to take care of that 644000 between now and August 11th, or He takes care of it between now and the end of the year, we know He's going to take care of it. Right, church? Okay. He's taken us this far. If He's taken us 92% of the way, can God handle the rest of the 8%? Absolutely, He can. And so God's done this work among us. So Kyle wanted me to remind you that in two weeks, if nothing else changes, no more money comes in from this point forward, we're going to begin drawing down on our loan. But that loan will represent that 644000 So that's an amazing story that we have to tell. And you're going to see how that also plays into what we're about to talk about. So before we go any further, I'd love to pray with you, and then we'll step into Romans 16 together. Would you join me? Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium, for every person who's watching online. For those who will stream it later today, God, for the reverberating effect of what you will do with your word. Every week we hear Michael tell us, let's continue in worship, and that's exactly what we're doing this morning. We're continuing in worship by worshiping you, by looking at your word and focusing our attention on the things that you wanted us to know. And there's a reason why you've listed what you have 2,000 years ago in this book called Romans in this farewell chapter of 16. Show us now, Father. Illuminate our mind. Move in our hearts the way you want us to respond. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. It may be that you've read ahead in Romans 16 or perhaps you've read it in the past and you've seen this huge laundry list of names. I'm here to tell you that Romans 16 is way more than just a list of names You'll find that there's 27 names listed, and I do want you to pay attention to that. 26 of them are in the city of Rome, and one of them is on their way to Rome. It's Phoebe. She's mentioned in the very first verse. So 27 people mentioned in total. And one of the things that we're reminded from in chapter 16 is that names matter. God wouldn't have moved Paul to write that, and he would not have retained it for 2,000 years if your name didn't matter. Your name matters to God. Jesus actually says that about you. He calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And he says there's something that the good shepherd does. Look with me on the screen at John 10, 3. Jesus is speaking of himself. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. See, he's talking about relationship. Because if you know someone by name, he's talking about a relationship you have with that person. That means there's intimacy. And where there's intimacy, there's concern. So every single name matters to God. Every name is an individual. Every individual is a soul, and souls matter to Jesus. Right, New Hope? Okay, let's go for some response here. We'll work on this. Every soul matters to Jesus, right, New Hope? I mean, to do, if you don't believe that, you know, we'll have to go back a little bit here and work on a, a basic one-on-one issue. Souls matter to Jesus. And so names matter to Jesus, and he says, I call them by name. So check this. Paul makes an effort to know other people's names. How do I know that? 
He's never been to the city of Rome. And yet he knows 26 people there. He's never been there. And yet, how does he know these individuals? Well, somebody has written him. He has information. He's apparently met a few of them in his travels, but he's never been to the city of Rome. And yet he can list these people and not just list them. He speaks about their personality trait. So what you're going to find in chapter 16 is Paul has this very tender heart. This guy who has written these hard things to you that you've studied over these three years, you're going to find some really intimate expressions coming from Paul. It just kind of abounds and leaks out of his farewell. And in turn, it does something for you. In turn, it yields a lot of insights into the nature and the makeup and the character of the personalities I told Lori earlier this week that I almost wish that I would have done chapter 16 prior to chapter 1 three years ago, because it would give us some insight into these personalities who are just like us that have received this letter. Well, let's dive in, because what I'm going to do for you is show you four personalities. There's 27 of them here, but we can only do four this morning, and let's go into the very first one, and it's found in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centrea that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. So Paul commends this woman, I think she's probably a younger woman, to this group of people who are in Rome. To commend someone in the Greek language meant you would sit with them. This is somebody you find that you would like to spend time with. And Paul says, this is a person who's precious to me, I would sit with her and spend time with her. I want you to do the same thing. I'm commending to you, her to you that you would receive her. And remarkably, Phoebe is the only one that's commended in this way in this chapter. Like this, why? Why her? Well, let's step back to answer that question. 2,000 years mentally. A period of time when there is no photocopiers. There's no email, there's no electronics of any type. Writing instruments are incredibly expensive. So at best, it's extremely unlikely that Paul has more than one copy of this thing that he spent all this time writing. It may be that his assistant has sat down and copied it over and that they've kept one for themselves and they send one out. But this is a very precious document, and Paul knows that this letter has the mark of God's inspiration. The truth that it imparts is absolutely of divine origin. Paul certainly knows that he's been communicating in the clarity and the power of the authority of God through the Holy Spirit. You can't read the book of Romans and not know that. And for that reason, he wants to make certain that this treasure that's now been rolled up into a scroll, that it's going to be entrusted to the most reliable person possible. And we find in verse 1, Phoebe. Phoebe, who's called a servant of the church at Centrea. And she's being sent with this letter of commendation, it says at the very end there in verse 1. So most scholars agree that when Paul wrote the book of Romans... He did it from a city of Corinth. He probably spent his winters there. And, and over the course of a long winter, while he's wintering, he begins laboriously putting together the book of Romans. Well, Centrea is a sister city to Corinth. 
I grew up in Whitehall, Michigan. It's over on the coastline. It's a little harbor town. And the sister city to it is Montague, Michigan. It's right across the White River, many times called the sister cities. Or we think of Minneapolis, St. Paul, the twin cities, sister cities. Centrea and Corinth are the same way, and Centrea is the port city to Corinth. Very likely, the church at Centrea is a daughter church to the church at Corinth. Paul's obviously had some influence in it, enough that he knows these people. And so Phoebe is from this church at Centrea. So we're pretty certain that Phoebe is the one who delivered this letter in person to the church in Rome. And I just want you to take that in for just a moment. This document that you're holding in your laps right now that you've poured over yourself, God entrusted to this personality here. Consider the magnitude of the responsibility that she has to carry what many believe to be the greatest letter that has ever been written found in the New Testament. Phoebe's name means radiant one, and apparently her personality represents that based on the things that Paul writes about here. Find in verse 1, it says that he calls her our sister. Can I remind you this morning that you and I are called brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Are you familiar with that term? If you're new to church, perhaps you haven't heard that. We are brothers and sisters in God's eternal household, and I find that we need to remind each other of that. It's not just a term that the church has co-opted. Many people who are new to church would say, well, why do those people call each other brother or sister? They're not biologically related. Well, here's the reason why. Look with me on the screen. Ephesians 2.19 says this, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household because you're in Jesus, right, church? Because you're in Jesus, you're brothers and sisters in Christ, not biologically related, even more powerful than that. Spiritually, you belong to each other. And Paul's writing, families do something. Families take care of their own. Phoebe is your own. She's your sister. Take care of her. She belongs to you. And Phoebe apparently is a very devoted member of the family of God, and she's especially dear to Paul. And goes on to call her a servant. Well, we know the term servant, we've looked at it over the years, but diakonos is a very familiar term because it can belong to someone who's a general servant in a household, or it can be the office of a diakonos, a deacon. The title is interchangeable. So when you think of the people who brought the water to Jesus when He turned water into wine, they were called diakonos, general servants of a household. But the same term is brought over here and it's used of Phoebe. She's called a diakonos. Is she a deacon or deaconess within the church? How does this fit of her? Well, New Testament deacons were charged with a responsibility within the church. Jesus said specifically, those who serve within the church, they're going to carry on some responsibilities. Here's what they're going to do, Jesus said from Matthew 25. They're going to feed the hungry. They're going to clothe the naked. They're going to care for the sick. They're going to extend hospitality. They're going to visit the imprisoned. A diakonos of Jesus would be someone who would stuff a backpack with toothbrush and toothpaste and clothing for children who have been torn from their home and are now in a foster care program. That's what a diakonos in the church would do. So the characteristic is true. Apparently, in the early church, women had a huge responsibility in this area of serving those who were hurting, but also a responsibility to help baptize 
and to instruct and disciple new converts, specifically to instruct other women and children. So you've got a diakonos who's a common servant, but you've got a diakonos who holds the office of deacon or deaconess. In the Greek language, there's no feminine form to it. It it just speaks of deacon, and we've co-opted it and made it into deacon and deaconess, indicating male and female. Whether Phoebe is in the office of deaconess, we don't know, but Paul commends her really, really highly because she's a highly proven servant of Jesus. He also has a description of her as a patroness. We'll come back to that detail in just a minute. Regardless of all those things, he implores the church in Rome in verse 2, I want you to receive her in a manner that's worthy of the saints. That comment says as much about Paul as it does about Phoebe. Paul knows what she's carrying in her satchel. He knows what he's labored over for months. He knows the depth and the magnitude of what it communicates. And he also is personally vested in making sure that she's cared for. Because Jesus promised in Matthew 25 that when we receive people and when we serve people and when we stuff backpacks, when we do it for one of the least of these, we do it for him. Then that's what Paul's calling them to do. He says, I want you to serve her in that way. So Christ followers are to receive and love in a way that is so distinct from the world that the world can't figure out what to do with it. That's why I loved Katie's follow-up statement when she told me when she arrived with the backpacks at Bethany Christian Services. She said, Mark, you won't believe how their eyes bugged out. They were just overwhelmed, like, what are we going to do with all this? We don't know those people. The, the chances of you ever meeting New Hope, ever meeting one of those children that are in the foster pro- program are very, very, very minute. And yet you loved on them, and it caused the staff at that center to say, who are those people? This New Hope church that loves kids that way that they'll never meet. Well, that's exactly what we're called to do. So we see this word, receive her, in verse 2. It's one of two Greek words in your notes this morning. I'll put it on the screen for you, prosdekomai. And prosdekomai is kind of an interesting word because it's a compound. So whenever you see the Greek language, when you see prose in front of something, it means moving forward into or leaning into. So we've got a forward action. In other words, somebody taking the initiative, prose, leaning into what? leaning into hospitality, meaning the first one to put the foot forward. Pros, decomai, put the compound word together. The first one to hospitality. So in a manner that would cause the world to step back and say, wow, that's unconditional. Jesus says that's a reflection of me. So Paul's request of this group of people who are brothers and sisters in Christ is that they will help her in whatever manner necessary. Look very closely at verse 2 on the screen, Romans 16, 2. Help her in whatever manner she may have need of you. Second and last Greek word in your notes, it's the word pragma. You know this word. It's where we get the word pragmatic, a business term. It borrowed from the world of finance. Brought here into the Scriptures in Romans 16 because it's implying a business deal. So we have here a woman who's some kind of a business professional, a businesswoman of some type who's successful enough to travel from Corinth to Rome. I don't know how frequently, but she makes this journey, and she's doing business in Rome. And Paul reinforces his request in verse 2 by this second part. 
She herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. So he calls her a helper. And what's that? Well, the Greek word's not in your note, but prostasis. And it's used of a person who's a patroness. So we have here an individual who's successful enough in business that she has enough wealth that she's underwriting organizations. She's underwriting individuals. We would call that person today a philanthropist. So this is what Dr. John MacArthur said about Phoebe. I want you to see his quote. Phoebe appears to be no ordinary helper, but one of high esteem and integrity. She is likely a businesswoman of considerable wealth and has used her financial means as well as her personal time and effort as a helper of many. So Phoebe's been entrusted with this letter that you've spent three years in, that Paul has labored over writing over the course of the entire winter, and she's got to make this journey from Corinth to Rome, which is a really significant sea and land adventure. Because for you and I, we're jumping on a jet plane if we have to go 1,400 miles. Or at least you're dedicating yourself to sit in a very comfortable car, and you've probably got snacks along the way. But for her, 1,400 miles is not an air trip. That's as the crow flies from Corinth to Rome, 1,400 miles. She's got to walk through canyons. She's got to go through ravines. She's got to get on a ship. And dangerous is not a word you can easily use to describe this kind of a journey. There were very few inns to stay in. And most were of the worst sort. They're like taverns associated with brothels and yet all kinds of prostitutes hanging out in them and the guys who would go along with that. So the only safe place to stay was with a friend or a contact. And what you needed to do that was a letter of commendation. And if you had a letter of commendation, you could show up at a door at midnight and knock on the door and say, I'm, I'm here because Paul sent me. Well, she's got this letter of commendation. Paul's sending her on her way. And it was given to travelers, especially those who came into dangerous settings. So when Phoebe arrives in Rome with Paul's letter in her hand, this group of people must have immediately realized this is somebody special. This is somebody who has been entrusted the enormous respect that's been placed in her even before they read the letter of commendation is immediately evident. She deserves their greatest respect. So God uses Phoebe to transport the first edition of this brilliant writing that you hold right now in your laps 2,000 years later. That's personality one. Now, these personalities are going to go successively much faster as we work through it. Go with me to the next one. Verse 3, greet Prisha and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own neck, not whom, not, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles, also greet the church that is in their house. So the first people to be greeted are Prisha and Aquila, or we know them as Priscilla and Aquila. They're written about that way in other places in Scripture. This is a husband and wife team. They're in this together. They're fellow workers, according to Paul, and they are a remarkable couple. They're mentioned six times throughout the New Testament in different books. Paul met them on his very first trip to Corinth, and here's how he met them. Prisha and Aquila were on the run. They had fled Rome because Caesar Claudius is in power. 
And apparently he came to a place where he didn't like the Jews because the Jews were associated with Christianity and he cared nothing for the Christians. So he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And Priscilla and Aquila, they've got a business going and now they've got to pull up stakes and go to another city. And they find themselves in Corinth. One of the things you should know about this period of time in the first century, it was very common for men and women when they showed up at the synagogue to separate, and men would sit on one side of the synagogue and women would sit on the other side. And then when the men broke into the men groups, they would be broken down even further, and they had to sit according to their profession. Well, what's Paul? Paul's a tent maker. What's Aquila? He's a tent maker. Well, very likely, these two met at the synagogue in Corinth, the big city. Here's what we do know about them for sure. Ultimately, Paul ended up moving in with them and staying at their home while he began working with people in the city of Corinth. And Paul says these are much more than just fellow workers. They risked their life to protect me. He says they put their neck on the line. Their life has been in jeopardy for me. So he says in verse 4, not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Can you imagine in the Greek-speaking world at that period of time, this is almost 40 years after Jesus has died, Christianity is exploding. Paul can say that all the churches of the Gentiles, all the Greek-speaking churches give thanks for them because they gave so selflessly. Apparently, wherever these two traveled, they cared for people brothers and sisters in Christ, so open-handedly and so non-prejudicially that they've got this character trait. One example would be when they mentored a young man. The young man, they were in one of the cities and they heard him talking about Jesus. And he was speaking so powerfully and so authoritatively from the Bible that many people were coming to faith in Jesus. But Priscilla and Aquila are in the background and they're listening to him talk and they notice that he's got some error in his doctrine is some of his theology was a little off. And so they call young Apollos aside and begin speaking to him. Watch with me on the screen how they mentor him. Acts 18, 26. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, after Caesar's death, Caesar Claudius, Priscilla and Aquila want to go home. And so they're free to move back to Rome, and they return there, and that's where they're living when Paul sends this letter. And by this time, there are many believers, and one of the satellite churches is meeting in their house. By this point in time, Christianity is spread over the Roman Empire, and in the city of Rome, there's multiple churches. Let me, if you have your Bible open, I'm not going to put this on the screen, but you can see this very quickly. Just look at verse 5, and then I'm going to show you in verse 14. Verse 5 says, greet also the church in their house. So that's one church. Let your eye drift down to verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, and then he goes on with a bunch of names you can't pronounce, and he says, and Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Well, that's a second church. And then verse 15, greet Philogus and all the saints who are with them. That's the third church. So the church in Rome is really churches. It's plural. What we would call a multi-site today. There's multiple campuses. Well, that's not too surprising. It's a big metro area. And Jesus is growing in knowledge among the people. And so the church is exploding and they don't have enough space to put everybody. Would that be a reasonable request for us to pray to God today to ask Him for that He would grow new hope into multiple locations? 
that he would raise up more Bible-believing churches in the metro area that would teach the Word of God authoritatively. This is what's going on in the church in Rome, multi-site, because they're hearing of who Jesus is. And these individuals, when I look at Priscilla and Aquila, I find these are movers, these are risk-takers. Ask yourself if you can see yourself in this story. Is this like you? They're risk-takers who are willing to move from the little that we know about them. They lived in Pontus, then in Rome, then in Corinth, then in Ephesus, then back in Rome again, then back to Ephesus. Wherever Jesus called them to, that's where they go. And it is not easy when you've got to pick up and move like that all the time. But everywhere they go, it seems they had a church in their house or at least a small group Bible study. People are coming to them, so they're movers and they're risk-takers for the kingdom. Is God calling you to live like that? Maybe you've never stopped to think about that before. It doesn't really matter what age you are. Is God calling you to that kind of risk-taking? I, th I thought of some of the young couples here within our own church that are taking on some of these responsibilities. I know of Nathan and Liana, whom you just saw up here singing, who are getting ready to go international this fall and be representing Christ overseas in the Middle East. I, I think of Sam and Carrie Bruce who are on their way back. They've been in Indonesia, and they'll be here this week. I, I think of the Gort Makers who are right now down in, South, or in Central America and Costa Rica. And I could mention many others. Katie Scott getting ready to go to Haiti. This is a risk taker. This is what Priscilla and Quilla are. But here's what's remarkable to me. Paul says they're my fellow workers, but they're not career missionaries. They're tent makers. So this is where you can find yourself in the story. Check this. This morning, among our group here, people watching online, there are many people who work in education and work in medicine and work in real estate, and work in retail, or work at GM. Some here work in finance. Paul calls them his fellow workers, and this is why I love this, because they're tent makers, but their focus is, how do we make Jesus more known? So occupationally, they work in tent making, but for the kingdom, they're willing to go wherever they need to. So Priscilla and Aquila, they work in Jesus, whether they're making tents or they're planning for 50 people to show up at their house at night. The main context for what they do is Jesus. So their work is for him. It's in him. And they're in this together. They're willing to die together. That's why Paul says, I really thank these people. They put their neck on the line for me. Now, you may have been working through this and thinking, Man, there's 16 verses, and he's only made it through five. How are we going to do this? Well, you'll see now, because this big laundry list of names, it goes really fast now. And Paul mentions them all specifically by their personality. We're going to read through them together, and I'm going to butcher their names. I'm just telling you right now. Look at the Greek pronunciations here, and let's drink in what he's talking about. Verse 5, part B. Greet Epaponetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Epaponetus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachius, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Asterobolus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. 
Greet Tryphonea and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Philegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philogus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another. It's the most interesting detail. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Personalities number three and personalities number four are going to go really fast. But you need to bear down on what he's talking about. So look with me on the screen at verse 10. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. From a very careful study of the New Testament... J.B. Lightfoot came to a conclusion. J.B. Lightfoot was one of the most respected New Testament theologians in the 1800s, lived in England, a professor of theology, and spent his lifetime studying passages like you just looked at. And putting together all the names after years of study, he came to a conclusion. This Aristobulus very likely is the brother of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I has a brother by this exact same name. You begin putting together the pieces and you would come to the same conclusion, but here it is in a nutshell. Herod Agrippa I is the grandson of Herod the Great, the very Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem. Herod Agrippa I is the one who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus, the very one who participated in that with Pilate. If so, this is a very close ally of Caesar. We know this from history. When Aristobulus died, his entire household, because he was of royal lineage, belonged to Caesar. So check this. His wife, his children, every possession he had, all of his real estate, all of his slaves immediately were transferred over to the household of Nero. Caesar Nero is in power by this point. Claudius is dead. That's why you find Priscilla and Aquila back in Rome. So Nero is in power, and Paul's saying, greet those of the household of Asterobulus. See, they would still be referred to that way even though the patriarch is dead. It's very likely that this group of believers is part of the imperial household. Can you imagine right under Nero's nose in his own house are believers in Jesus Christ? The Caesar who most wanted to exterminate the Christians. Go with me to the next in the fourth personality. Verse 13, you see this on the screen. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Would you not love to open up the Bible and have it say, Greet Sally, a choice woman in the Lord. Greet Tom, a choice man in the Lord. Would you not love to see your name there? How do you get that moniker? How do you get Paul to say that about you? Well, you have to understand what's going on here with the history. We know that the book of Mark was written from the city of Rome. When Mark wrote the gospel of Mark... It was after the letter to the Romans had arrived. So Mark was greatly influenced not only by the people who were the believers in Rome, but most believe that Mark wrote what he did because of what Peter dictated to him. 
Because Mark would have been a little boy when Jesus was walking the planet. Somebody as an adult had to tell him these things that he's recorded. Well, one of the things that Mark recorded is a detailed piece of information that comes from the story that we most commonly see at Easter time. Mark tells us about an individual who was in Jerusalem by the name of Simon. Simon of Cyrene. And if you've been here at Easter, that's clicking with you. All of a sudden you're thinking, yeah, that's the guy who carried Jesus' cross. That's the guy the Roman soldiers pulled out of the crowd and forced him to take on Jesus' cross and carry it up the hill. So Mark gives us this particular detail, Mark 15, 21. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. See, Mark had no reason to include those names unless they're known to the church. Why would the church need to know about Alexander and Rufus? Because they're known to them, and they're the sons of Simon of Cyrene. And so they're known to the church, and scholars agree that the Rufus that's mentioned here is the son of Simon. So check this. Most are convinced that this same Simon who walked beside Jesus and carried that cross by force up Golgotha came to faith in Jesus. This very same one would have then become highly honored within the church. It's obvious from what's written here that Rufus came to faith in Jesus, giving Paul and Mark all the more reason to mention them as a brother in Christ. Why all this detail? Why did you need to know about these four personalities? Because they're us, church. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus. We're called to a common responsibility. We follow one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Brothers and sisters who do life together, who stuff backpacks together. And here in the first century church, you find this amazing cross-section of people, a very successful businesswoman, a husband and wife team who are willing to do whatever they have to do, members of the imperial household of Caesar, people who are actually at the crucifixion. And so it's really evident to us as we read this and look at history that these people truly understood the things that Paul wrote in Galatians. In the early church, there was indeed neither Jew nor Greek. Look with me on the screen at Galatians 3.28. Neither Jew nor Greek, there was neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female. Why? Because we're all one in Jesus Christ, right, New Hope? You guys, don't sound like you believe that. Are, are we one in Jesus? We are. So if we're all one in Jesus, we've got one focus. So these individuals genuinely believe and consider themselves one in Christ Jesus. So check this, whether wealthy or poor, whether famous or completely unknown, the church enjoys a depth of fellowship that the world cannot know. What drives us to do that? Well, the answer has to be Jesus. Because when you consider the cadre of people represented here, the personalities represented over the course of our three services, the, the vast backgrounds and the occupations, 
there's only one thing that would bring all these personality types together, and that's one common element. It's Jesus. Dr. Warren Wearsby had a really interesting insight about this. I want to close with his quote and take you into another verse for just a moment. He said this, I have discovered that the servants whom God has used the most were people who could make friends. They multiplied themselves in the lives of their friends and associates in the ministry. While there may be a place for the secluded saint who lives alone with God, it is my conviction that most of us need each other. We are sheep, and sheep flock together. Amen, Dr. Wearsby. We need each other, right, New Hope? We do. We need each other. But as we serve well, as we stuff backpacks together, as we send our own out overseas, as we love each other well, Jesus said that actually has an evangelistic effect. And we've talked about this issue over the last couple of weeks, that God calls us to the responsibility of evangelism. And I said to you last week, He doesn't call everybody to be an evangelist. Not everybody's going to be a Billy Graham. But He does call every one of us to be a witness. And Jesus says there's a unique way that you witness when you do the very things that we talk about. Jesus spoke to this issue. Watch what He said, John 13, 35. By this, all men will know. That word know means without a shadow of a doubt. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the kind of love he's talking about is really attractional to a watching world. To the degree that people would say, wow, there's something different about those people at New Hope. That is fragrant. They would serve a bunch of children they're never going to meet, that they would give away of their own resources, that they would build this building out on Saginaw. It's just a tool. It's a tool that God has worked through you to build for this purpose so that we can love on the metro area better. Now, to strengthen the church or to have an impact on the world, something has to be true of that kind of love. It has to be legit. Because people can smell fake love a long way away, can't they? You can smell it. It reeks. So when Jehovah's love is genuine, when it's legitimate, when it's authentic, Jesus says it's actually fragrant. So Paul closes with this amazing detail in verse 16 when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. As a teenager, I was really confused by that because I thought, I mean, I'm supposed to run up to girls and kiss them? Well, what's he talking about? And Bible college and years later, and I really came to understand what's being described here. So if you're in the first century, you would find, especially even in Europe today and parts of the Middle East, individuals will come up to each other, and if they haven't seen them in a while, in modern era in 2019, they'll kiss them quickly on the cheek. But in the first century... This was the exclusive territory of family or friends with whom you had a very deep relationship. So they would see an individual coming towards them and walk up to them, and if, if it was a family member or someone they had a great relationship with, embrace them, give them a big old smacker right on the forehead or on the cheek, or if it was a man that they really revered, they would kiss him on the beard. You should have seen the guys in the nine o'clock service grabbing their beards at this point. <laughs> Don't be kissing my beard, man. Okay. 
So that happened among family members and among really close friends. But imagine you live in the first century and you're under the boot of Nero and you've claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've been ostracized by the community and by your own family. And you no longer have family who will come up to you and embrace you and love on you and kiss you. You're feeling left out, especially when your family goes like, no, not anymore. So when Paul writes this, he's writing to these brothers and sisters in Christ who do life together, who are willing to embrace each other to the degree that they will kiss their cheek, kiss their forehead, and celebrate the relationship of being a brother and sister in Christ. This is a match for what Paul wrote in Romans 12, which is what I end with today. You only have to think back a year and a half to Romans 12, okay? Watch what he wrote. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Who does that? Family. Family does that. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, lest you leave here this morning and you find the first person in the parking lot and you want to plan a holy kiss on them, make sure they want it first, okay? All right? Different, different era, right? Okay. But you get what he's talking about. That we would do life together that way. Here's how I'm going to ask you to pray to close, and then I'm, I'm going to pray along with you in just a minute. How about if you take just a minute and thank God for these saints who have gone before us? Because they set the bar, didn't they? They left a legacy. This is what it was like, and this is what we're being called to do ourselves today. So just take a moment, just thank God, and then I'll close. Father, collectively, we thank you for what you caused Paul to write, and it was not by accident, or we wouldn't have it today. You deliver it, that you preserve this for 2,000 years, and now we can begin to see why it's not just a list of names. I look forward to meeting Rufus one day, Father. I'm sure that all of us in this auditorium and those watching will one day meet these individuals who are listed they're also our brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for the legacy they've left. And now I ask for us as a church family that this would be true of us. That there will be children coming in generations to attend New Hope. Grandchildren and great-grandchildren and generations after that who will look back to us in 2019. And that it would be true of us that we did this well. So, Father, I pray for us in this moment right now that we would be deliberate this week, even this afternoon, to look for ways.
to encourage, to stimulate, to show hospitality to those who really need to be encouraged. I pray that that would be a trademark of this church as you continue to grow us. Thank you for the blessings that we know in Jesus our Savior and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.